I heard a new theory. I don't know how to describe it. Hypothesis. Some conspiracy that China is selling EVs to the world. Oh, and then yeah. it will be able to throw a switch and all of them turn off. Yeah. What's Jerry's take on that? <laughs> I guess technically it's possible. <laughs> uh, why would China do that? Why would they jeopardize the one of the biggest growth industries in the world? And I think most countries in the world have China as their largest trading partner. Mm. If China has an ability to switch off your EV, why would it build that in and potentially <laughs> do it and have no you, one would buy anything from China. Exactly. Anymore. Our fridge is watching us and, <laughs> and our toaster can uh, find out what we're doing. Honestly, I just think it, this is a mad conspiracy theory. So, you, know, you need to get the tinfoil hat on if you really believe this Next is time true. I'll bring tinfoil hats. Yeah, that's a great idea. We should, <laughs> we should, we should do, do the podcast in tinfoil hat. Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Friend of the show, Jerry Gray is back for his third time. He's traveled across China by bicycle more than once. He's a regular media commentator on TV, radio, print news, and maintains a, an active and growing YouTube channel called Jerry's Take on China, where he frequently posts calm, rational discussions on the contemporary topics related to China, Australia, the UK, US, and the wider world. Thank you for your time, Jerry. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Jason. It's great to be here. I mean, Beijing, which is fantastic. Now, I've caught up with you personally, but not on our forums. So right. where have you been? What have you been up to? Since we last met, I've been to, I think, five or six different, no, more. I've been to at least eight different provinces, municipalities. Wow, I did a, a six-city lecture tour. I had a holiday in Yunnan, but then uh, stopped off for some business meetings in Hunan on the way back and uh, spent some time in Shanghai doing some training. And now I'm in Beijing for a media. Well, we're happy to have you. You know, I was talking to you the other day and you mentioned that when you first arrived in China, you actually weren't that keen to be here, but that your attitude changed over that first year. Could you walk us through that change? You're being very polite. I actually hated it. <laughs> I, I was really, trying to be like no, diplomatic. Yeah, I really hated China. I lost confidence. I, I came to a country. I mean, I traveled a lot before I came to China, but you know, everywhere I'd been, people could speak English. And I arrived in Zhongshan, which at the time was a third tier city. Very rare to find someone who could speak English. And yeah. basically, I was teaching Monday to Friday. Friday evening at five o'clock until Monday morning, I spoke to no one. And I would just walk around the city looking for restaurants that had pictures so I could order <laughs> yeah, some food. Yeah, that was my experience too. Yeah, yeah. It was a really um, daunting experience. And it took several months for me to build up the confidence to go in and order food and tell them I don't like, I did like spicy and, uh, you know, I don't like it too spicy, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you've got to pick up the, that uh, functional language. And until I did, I was really uncomfortable in China and didn't enjoy it. It was also very very dirty place at the time mm. and corrupt. <laughs> so there was a lot of things not to like about China in 2005 when I mm. came here. 
What changed your attitude over the course of that first year? Traveling. I had a three-week holiday. The contract I was on was in a school and, and there was a summer holiday, but my contract was kind of different from the school, so I didn't get the full holiday period. But I had a three-week break and I was able to meet up with a friend of mine who was also working in a school in um, Xi'an. We went from Xi'an to Chongqin, wow. from Chongqin on the uh, Three Gorges tour down to Yichang and then from there into Wuhan. And I started to realize that there's a hell of a lot more to China than the Zhongshan that I'd seen, which I now absolutely love. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, did you just sell out Zhongshan? <laughs> a real transition period that I can't even pinpoint. There was one day, I used to tick off the days on the calendar because I came here for an eight-month contract. It was extended to 11 months. And then I was ticking off the days. Mm. And then one day I realized, oh, I've only got 60 or 70 days left. And I started to worry, I don't want to go home just yet. Huh. And it was a complete transition. I still, I wouldn't say that I loved China at the time, the way that I feel now about China. It still had all of the same problems, but I hadn't experienced enough yet right. to be able to say, I'm ready to leave. And I wasn't ready to leave. And it was um, going like that. I reached the end of my contract and I went looking for a new job. And that's how I met my wife. You know, it was a decision to stay in China that caused me to meet my soulmate, my best friend, my best teacher, the person I'm now married to. Wow. Mm. So traveling around was one of the things that helped you have a sure. better outlook yeah. on China. Yeah. Also learning a little bit about the language helps a little bit. Meeting Anne was probably the most important, obviously the most important thing. She's been my wife for mm. 14 years now. That was a really, really important turning point. But Would also because she guided you into the culture? She's a very diplomatic person. She'll tell you when you're wrong. She can tell you to go to hell in such a way you enjoy the journey. <laughs> uh, she's really diplomatic about, you know, when I get angry about something, she'll very often say things like, I can hear her translate when I'm angry about something or uh, if I'm frustrated, she will say, you know, the foreigners don't really understand our culture. So, and she'll explain this to the person in mm. Chinese. And that way, the other person's not angry with me for being angry with them. You know, when we all have our little frustrations in China, banking, staying uh, in hotels. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I would say <clears throat> e-bikes on the sidewalks. E-bikes on the sidewalks. Yeah. It's a frustrating yeah. thing for me. Yeah. And, you know, no matter how many times people explain it, I'm still not over like everything has to be hot, scalding hot. Here's yeah. your scalding hot tea. Here's yeah. your scalding hot water. Yeah. I love China. Undrinkable. But I'm sorry, I, I, my mouth burns very easily. I yeah. wanted to talk about the greater Bay Area where you live. Yeah. I was looking at a map of it yesterday and you actually live right in the middle. Literally, great, yeah. Uh, Zhongshan means middle mountain, but that's not how it's got its name. It's it's the birthplace of Sun Zhongshan. And it is literally right in the center of the greater Bay Area. And this includes Macau, Hong Kong, Zhuhai, Shenzhen, and other places, including yeah. Poshan, Guangzhou even, actually. Actually, so it's a huge area. It's much bigger than you think. Yeah, um, it has 100, and, I think 110 million people living there. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess they're trying to do something called Jing Jing here, which is maybe going to take a longer amount of time. Mm -hmm. But you know, in your almost 20, is it 20 years? 20 years plus. 19. 19. Years. I hit 19 years in about a month's time. So yeah, and then I'll be in my 20th year. That's in how terms it works. of your experience of living there, what kind of changes have you seen in terms of like growing this area together, linkages, physical connectivity, that kind of thing? How long do we have, Jason? Because I mean, this is just too big a topic. <laughs> just the highlights then. Everything has changed. Everything. Absolutely everything. I remember in my first couple of months in the school having a chat with some of my students and they said they're going to build a high-speed rail to Beijing. And I said, well, yeah, okay, that'll happen one day. 
And about a year and a half later, it happened. It's, I think, 2008 or 2010, it arrived. And we can now catch a train anywhere in China. Mm. Uh, so high-speed train anywhere in China. Uh, the other thing was, and I actually laughed out loud about this. They said they're building a bridge to Hong Kong. And I went back to the staff room at lunchtime, and I came back with a map to show them where Hong Kong was. I said, this is not going to happen. And now I've heard they're planning on building a bridge to Indonesia. So that, wow. that's a, a future plan. I mean, not, it's not going to happen in the next few years, but there is going to be one day in the future a high-speed rail link probably to Australia. That was a plan that was mooted a few years ago. So when they start mooting these plans as ideas, they start to come to fruition. Wow. So in terms of how was it meant interconnectivity, these physical structures, that the bridges and yeah. the high-speed rail in the Greater Bay Area, how has that meant people are able to move around? Are people from different regions working in other areas? Yeah. People don't commute in the sense that we would do in the West. I used to live in Essex for a while, and you could commute in and out of London by train. That's not such a common thing. People tend to live in the city that they work. But you can get anywhere in the Greater Bay Area within an hour now anywhere at all. Right now, the distance between Zhongshan, so the furthest distance would be from Zhuhai to Shenzhen. Mm. And they're actually quite close. You can see Shenzhen from Zhuhai, but it's on the opposite side of the Pearl River Delta. And so right now it's quite awkward to get to, but in the next few months, there is a bridge opening. It's the bridge is there and it's almost complete. The whole thing is complete. They're finishing it off. And in the next few months this year or early next year, they will open a link from Zhongshan to Shenzhen. And it's at the Zhuhai end of Zhongshan. So it's literally going to take 20 minutes to get from Zhuhai or Zhongshan into Shenzhen. So there's a series of these bridges. The whole GBA is interlinked with bridges. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they're really like all super mammoth kinds of bridges. Yeah, like 70, 80 kilometers long. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The one from Hong Kong, I think, is the longest in the world. The one from Shenzhen is going to be the longest of its kind. There is a tunnel, but it's not a bored tunnel. It's a tunnel that is a submerged tunnel. They've submerged it in links. Is this the, the one longest. that goes out into the water and then... Yes, yeah, it goes into an artificial so island and then underneath <laughs> and, and then back up again. And there's uh, two suspension bridges on either side. I mean, these are not just suspension bridges. When you you think of a suspension bridge, you think of something like in the UK, the, the Humber Bridge. And I remember when that was opened, that was about 1970 something. And it was a huge, big thing. This is one of the longest bridges in Europe. And you think about that, and there's nothing like that in China. They're all 10 times as long. Yeah. They're, they're really, really big bridges. I was actually, I'm from San Francisco, and there's the Golden Gate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I first went to Wuhan a few years ago, I noticed that there's just like 11 Golden, Golden Gate bridges, <laughs> one after yeah. another, after another, after yeah. another. Wuhan is. And then Chongqing as well, there's cities of bridges. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. What is the significance of the Greater Bay Area Project? What is it meant to increase? Is it about cyber activity? Is it about physical interconnectivity? What is going on there? It's a bit of everything. It's certainly, if it was a country, it would be, it would qualify for the G7. It's that high. Just the GBA's, I think it's like two trillion US dollars GDP. So it's, it's up there with the UK's and the France's in terms of its GDP, just that area. But then it has 110 million people living in it. What's its purpose? The purpose is exactly that. It's inter interconnectivity with the world. But it's also, it's a very lesser known fact that there are three areas which are called deep cooperation zones. In Zhuhai, linking to Macau, we have Hanqing. In Shenzhen, linking to Hong Kong, we have Shanghai. And then in uh, Nansha, there's another area. Nansha is literally, if you take a look at the river, the Pearl River, right at the top, 
That's Nanshat, where Guangzhou basically meets the sea. And they've built a deep cooperation zone there. So now there are people moving out of Macau, out of Hong Kong, and into those areas. And they have a kind of a mutually acceptable legal system, financial system, property system. So effectively, somebody who moves from Hong Kong to live inside of Guangzhou in Nansha is effectively a Hong Kong resident in China. The financial system means that they can operate through one financial system instead of going through and and doing currency exchanges. The whole thing is interlinking. People think in the West, people think China is taking over Hong Kong. It's the opposite. Hong Kong is taking over parts (laughs) of China. And Macau is doing the same. Macau is now, I think, 12 times bigger than it used to be because Henqing is on the mainland and it is massive. I think it's either eight or 12 times, I'm not exactly sure, but it's much, much bigger than Macau. And it's opening Macau up to a diversification, whereas it used to be just tourism and gambling. It's now pharmaceuticals, massive pharmaceutical industries down there and traditional Chinese medicine too. So there's a lot of things going on in the Greater Bay Area that are connecting the two SARs, the special administrative regions, into. And it's almost impossible now to tear them apart. You can't. They're just so interlinked now. One of the things that you do is you do Jerry's take on China. And from my own perspective, essentially, you're taking bad takes on China and debunking them. That's pretty much my goal. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you used to actually be a police officer in the UK. Yes. And you've recently been talking about security in China and the West's perspectives on security in China, where they oftentimes clouded in this dystopian gray sky kind of misunderstanding. Could you shed some light on, as a former police officer, your views on China's cameras and security. Okay. Cameras are an interesting thing because Chinese people have a completely different perspective to Western people. As a police officer, I would say, why would you have a problem with a camera? Because if you're not doing anything wrong, then the camera is there to protect you. Now, the civil libertarians would say, yes, but, and I understand their argument. I don't agree with it, but I do understand it. In China, the whole country, every single person I've ever spoken to feels the same way or tells me they feel the same way that this is making us safer. Mm -hmm. There used to be a lot of crime in China. There's no crime anymore, virtually no street crime. You, You can walk around China very, very safely. That's a very important factor. But then there's the other factor people say there's so many cameras because they're counting numbers. You know, there might be 50 million cameras, 100 million. I don't know what the number is. But if you take a look at the roads, they're littered with cameras. There's cameras everywhere on the roads. And it's very different. One of the things I used to work in the security industry in Australia as well. And one of my businesses was a traffic management company. And we used to do infringement management. So we would write Mm. parking tickets. My company would write parking tickets and the system would manage them. And we actually had contracts with councils, which gave us quotas, they gave us budgets, and they gave us penalties if we didn't meet them. So in other words, they pretty much guaranteed their income. All we had to do was guarantee a certain number of infringements. China doesn't do that. It's the opposite in China. What they do is they say, we're going to tell you and show you where all these cameras are so you don't break the law. (laughs) And this is a very different way of looking at it. In the West, parking inspectors, traffic wardens, different names for these people, uh, they will kind of hide in doorways and write tickets. So they're increasing revenue. China, they're wide open about it. And the GPS is telling you there's a speed camera head, there's a seatbelt camera head, there's a mobile phone camera head. The GPS is telling you this as you're driving along the freeways. To create better behavior. Well, that's exactly what the goal is. It's to create better behavior rather than to generate income from Mm. it. That's the 
difference between our two cultures and our two societies. I see China in the way that I, as a police officer, saw cameras in the UK. And there are more cameras in the UK per capita, but there's obviously a lot less cameras than there are in China. And I see completely differently to the way civil libertarians see it. This is not an encroachment on my privacy because I'm doing nothing wrong. However, if I want to do something wrong, I will get caught. That's the way I view it. And uh, I don't think most people, most people don't set out in life to be criminals. They become criminals through a series of actions that lead them down that path. And it could be poverty, which is another thing. There's very little poverty in China. Mm. There's still poor people, but there's very little poverty. Mm. But even the poor people won't steal because they know they will get caught. So they'll find other methods to get whatever they need. Well, I certainly feel very safe on the streets. And I know that if something were to transpire, there would be plenty of evidence to show what actually transpired. So I, yeah. I know that you have to behave yeah. because essentially, if you don't behave, you're going to, if something happens, you might be found out. Of course, that's never happened. So I behave well. Um, <laughs> from the early 1990s to now, mm. I've looked at the it's just <clears throat> a crazy amount of economists are constantly saying 1991, China's going to collapse. 1992, China's going to collapse every year, all the time. And there's some people who are especially well known for saying so. Let's not mention any names. <laughs> but it's obviously not happening. No. 30 years later, China is bigger than ever. It's growing faster. It's, it's extremely modern. What do you think is driving these incorrect predictions? And what's Jerry's take on China's economy? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting question. There's two things. Jerry's take on China's economy is that the same as yours. There is no danger of any collapse here. I mean, I was in uh, Hongqiao railway station a couple of days ago, and it was packed, absolutely <laughs> packed. Then I got off the train and in Beijing, and it was just as packed. So there's people traveling around. There's plenty of money circulating. There's a very interesting interesting fact that uh, China, a lot of the reports show China's growth is slowing. Yeah, it is slowing. There's no question about that. But when you get to $17 trillion, 5% of that is much better than 20% of $6 trillion. So if India grew higher than China in the last year, well, it did so probably because it was negotiating with Russia and selling Russian products to the rest of the world. So India has, has benefited and capitalized from that. But India's GDP is only two or three trillion, and it grew by six or seven percent. Mm -hmm. China's is 17 trillion, and it grew by five percent. Now, when you get to that stage, China's GDP grew by more than the UK's GDP was. <laughs> now, forget about GDP, wow. which is shrinking in the UK and, and a lot of Europe as well. China's GDP grew by more than that. And there's another factor that a lot of people don't know about. And this is a really interesting little snippet of information, which I was researching the other day about, I was doing something about poverty alleviation. And I was writing this article and I came across this thing, which said, this is incredible. I cannot believe this is true. So I had to dig deeper and it is true. Chinese people during COVID saved more into their bank accounts than the GDPs of all but seven countries in the world. They saved $2.6 trillion, dollars, not RMB, dollars, into their bank accounts inside of 2022. Now, there are only seven countries that have a higher, and China is one of them, that have a higher GDP than $2.6 trillion. Yeah. That's an incredible statistic. So how can a country that has that much money inside of it collapse? Yes, there's a debt to GDP ratio, but it's a half of um, America. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about one or much, much lower than Japan and countries like that. Oh, yeah. Japan yeah. has some serious, serious problems. problems. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I actually also think the term slowing is confusing to people who don't know much about economics. So you have your typical like reader and they see, oh, China's uh, growth is slowing. Mm. They get, oh, really? That sounds bad, right? Because that's what the meaning of the word. But when China's economy is growing at 5.2% in H1, the first half of the year, mm. and the U.S. economy is growing about 1.8%, yeah. it's clearly China's growing that more than twice as fast. Yeah, the gap is narrowing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it is, you know, that's really, I hadn't thought about that in terms of 5% 5% of 17 trillion. <laughs> yeah. I'd really put it at context. That's a really so, great I mean, way of thinking. People look at China's growth and say, well, they used to get 20% growth. Yes, they did, but they only had three, four, five trillion dollars of GDP at that mm, time. Mm, so getting mm. 20% growth on that was, I mean, obviously it's a fantastic mm. growth. And that was through China's massive infrastructure. Mm. Now that infrastructure has slowed down. And the West are saying, well, they can no longer build any more infrastructure. Believe me, China will find infrastructure oh, yeah. if, it, if it needs to build it. Oh, yeah. The big thing now, and it, it, there's a couple of problems. One is domestic consumption because we've saved too much money. And uh, I'm guilty of that. I've got savings in the bank because last year we didn't do as much as we would normally do. So we've saved our money. The other big problem is the youth unemployment, which is a massive, big, I would call it a furphy. It just, it isn't the problem that they think it is. If you take a look at a graph of the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. every May and June, it spikes. Because of new graduates. Because graduates graduate. Yeah. Then this year it spiked and it is high higher than last year. Of course, that's a problem. That's an issue that is being dealt with. And they're dealing with this in many different ways. The CPPCC, is that the right? I think you got it. Yeah. That's hard. They, yeah, I know. <laughs> they have set procedures in place to minimize this, to mitigate this. It is going to get worse before it gets better because there's a lot of people graduating. Mm. As this happens, there's a lot of people being retrained and trained, vocational training as well. And when they are trained and they graduate, they need to have jobs to go to. What China has done is invest a trillion RMB, not dollars, but RMB into the aged care industry. Mm. Now they are retraining young people to take care of old people mm-hmm. and therefore fixing two problems. At the same that, time. That the rest of the world are saying China's going to collapse because it's got an aging population. China's going to collapse because it's got a youth unemployment problem. But these two things are being matched to help each other. So it's mm-hmm. going to get better, but it might get worse next year. Well, I think there's another aspect to this, mm-hmm. because if you look at overall unemployment, it's about 5.2%. Yeah. And and three to five percent is considered the healthy range. Normal, so five point two percent unemployment is pretty healthy, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure what youth unemployment is because I've never looked, but I'm sure youth unemployment in Europe would be equally as high. I, as I China. think yeah, the West is probably has more serious issues. Many see the Sino-U.S. relationship is the key one because they're the two largest economies in the Both, world. Yeah. And uh, in recent months, we've had Tim Cook, Blinken, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. I think we had Yellen. Now we have the Secretary of She's, Trade. Yeah. Raimondo. Yeah, Yeah, who's currently in Beijing, as we're speaking. What do you see with all of these exchanges of ideas? Is there a normalizing of Sino-U.S. relations? What do you think? Not a normalizing. There will be behind the scenes some degree of normalizing that we're not seeing. We're not privy to what goes on in State Department and foreign affairs here. We're not privy to a lot of what's going on. Australia's got the same issues. In public, the politicians have a a hostile press. They have a hostile public. And in order to get re-elected, the last thing they want to say is we want to deal with China. Because as soon as they say that, ah, you're a China Fink. Actually, Fink is a great word. Larry Fink was here. Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock. Now, why was he here meeting China's leaders? Because these people who know 
No, that's the difference. <laughs> the difference between right, people yes. who read the headlines, but the people who know. Larry Fink knows this. His company has, I think, $9 trillion under asset management. It's the largest asset management corporation in the world. And he's in China, was in China a few weeks ago, trying to deal with China because of one reason only. Chinese banks have $50 trillion under asset management because of our savings. The, the Chinese people are inveterate savers. Mm -hmm. as 40% of the income is being saved, or was last year. It's 45% now. Is it? Yeah. I think it may have gone up last year because it's of COVID. It's about triple it, the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't think that the U.S. had any savings. Well, there's some people, about 50% of people who have some, say, mm -hmm. some savings, okay. and about 50% of people who have no savings. I know that in on last time I looked at this was a few years ago, the average spending was 112% of income. And the average spending in China at that time when I looked at it was 67% of income. So Chinese people were saving 30 plus percent. Americans are spending 12% more than they earn. So you're living on credit. Credit cards. credit cards are a serious yeah. issue in the United States right now, yes. Yes. So Larry Fink is here. Why was he here? He's here because he wants to get a part of that 50 trillion in asset management. BlackRock have a, a branch in China, and they recently had a changeover of um, a CEO inside of China. And I'm not sure where that's going as yet, but Larry Fink was here just recently. Well, I'm certainly hopeful for the best. One of the things that keeps getting rehashed by people who like to talk about China, but usually live outside of China, is social credit scores. And honestly, you know, I think that there was trialed here and there in the past. I I certainly have not ever been affected by that. And there's even a video going around where this lady claims she can't use cash, which is obviously patently untrue. And I'm going to make a video about that showing using cash. But what do you think about this whole social credit score phenomenon? I carry a, <laughs> I carry a hundred RMB just in case my WeChat doesn't work one day or, yeah. you know, I've run out of credit on my phone. Something goes wrong. There's a hundred RMB to get me out of trouble. I don't carry a wallet. That's the only money I carry. Social credit score. I love of asking people what's your social credit score. They, they, <laughs> I have no idea. They, I've never heard it. Huh? It doesn't affect me whatsoever. Social credit score? What do you mean? Do you mean what's my credit score in the bank? You can go to the bank and you can get through an ATM machine. There's mm. a smart ATM. You can just press a button for free and get your credit score and find mm. out what your credit score is so that you can borrow, get a credit card right. or whatever. Normal credit. Or not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, depending on your situation. So you have a credit Rating. Everybody in China has a credit rating of some, every adult in China. Every, has, in every country. Yeah. yeah. What's different? The other thing is, and a lot of people mistake this. I made a video about this a few months ago, the credit score. People talk about this blacklist. You know, you get put on a blacklist if you're bad credit. No, you don't. You get put on a blacklist if you have an outstanding debt that is going through the court procedures. You get put on a blacklist if you're on bail for something. Mm. We don't call it on bail in China. You call it on bail in the West. But what, what happens in China is you are put onto a list that doesn't allow you to leave town. That's a blacklist. So mm. it gets this name. There are many different aspects to what people call the social credit score. If you, I've actually been involved in this. If you do good things, you can be rewarded. If you do bad things, nothing happens unless you're illegal. So jaywalkers can be. So if I jaywalk too much, am I going to not be able to buy McDonald's later? Correct. No. <laughs> no, that is what people believe. That's what people believe. But what actually happens is if you jaywalk, you get a fine. Mm. If you don't pay the fine, then you can be blacklisted because now you've gone through the legal procedures of a court and you haven't done the right thing. Well, then, it's the same for ha like having yeah. a warrant in the West. Or exactly. Yeah. It's like being on bail, having a warrant, having some sort of court restrictions to stop 
you're doing something. As a police officer, I would often release people on bail. In the UK, it's usually on bail on your own recognizance. And mm -hmm. if you don't turn up, there's a penalty. But if you do turn up, nothing happens. So during that time, you may be required to attend the police station every day, which means you can't effectively travel and sign a, a bail book every day. So every country has everything that China has that is described as a social credit score, every country has except for one aspect. And that is the you can go into an app and you can register on this app and you can do volunteer work. And when you do that, certain aspects of society are more available to you than they are to the ordinary person who doesn't volunteer. So what that means is somebody, a friend of mine has a, a five-year-old child and wanted that child to go to this school but didn't live in that area. So you go on the app, you register on the app, you do some volunteer work, you help in the community, you get a few points and then it lifts you up the waiting list for that school. That's a benefit to society. There is no no negative benefit to not being in that system. You don't get penalized for not being in it. You get benefits because you do something that helps society. Now, I can't see anything wrong with that. I, I just think that's a great idea. If I work in um, charity in disabled communities, and I've been asked many times, sign on to this app, it's of no benefit to me. But there's no cost in not being involved in it. It benefits the people who, the Chinese people who work with us in the disabled community can get some benefit from this. They, they get discount on tickets to events. You know, if if a, a stage show is coming to Zhongshan, they're the first people to get the option to buy a ticket because they're on this social credit score. You and your wife, you manage or you're part of a charity. We founded a charity, yeah. What's the name of that charity? So maybe it, listen, may donate some money. It's called Helping Hands, but um, it's not a registered charity. Oh, I see. I do have a plan one day when, I, if I ever monetize my YouTube and start asking for uh, donations, I'll be donating a percentage of it to that. You've actually made donations to it. I do know that. That's right. Yeah. We well. The United States and some of its allies that have been pressured are trying to de-risk. This is yeah. the new term for soft decoupling, I guess, yeah. and this trade war. As far as I can tell, as an American, this is just an added tax on goods from China for yeah. American consumers paying for goods that are flowing into China because they're still going to Walmart or wherever mm -hmm. and buying goods that are coming from China. But now there's a slight increase in the cost of those goods, which may be driving inflation a little bit. How do you see decoupling? It's not going to happen. It can't happen. Well, the only way that there would be a decoupling is if there is a war. And I can't ever see America joining a war against China. That would be an unwinnable war where they're escalating to Armageddon. So it's, I mean, let, let's be realistic about this. Only a madman would want a proper decoupling, because that would be the same as America's decoupled from Russia. But even there, they haven't decoupled from Russia because they're still buying things they need from Russia. Mm. And Russia is still selling things to other countries that are ending up back in America. So it's not really decoupling. We're too globalized now. It's not going to happen. Mm. And in terms of what China does with America, America is China's largest individual trading partner. ASEAN and the European Union are larger, but they are groups. America is the number one country as a trading partner. I can't see them ever not having that. I would suggest that pretty much everything, everything that is used 
in America, even American-made products are assembled in America with some parts that are coming from China. Yeah. You wouldn't have a transportation system, a communication system. You wouldn't have any fuel dependency. You wouldn't have clothes in your supermarkets. You wouldn't have shoes on your feet. You wouldn't have anything if you say, we're not going to accept anything from China. Even the shoelaces in your Nike shoes come from China and probably from Xinjiang too. Well, you know, shoes are one thing, but I need an electronic coffee maker. And I know that parts are coming from China, so there's no a way. Coffee I'm... maker's probably made in <laughs> Zhongshan. If it's, if it's a DeLonghi, which is a very, very famous Italian brand, their factory's in Zhongshan. I heard a new theory. Yep. And I, I, I wouldn't even say theory. I don't know how to describe a hypothesis, some conspiracy that China is selling EVs to the world oh, and then yeah. it will be able to throw a switch and all of them turn off. Yeah. What's Jerry's take on that? <laughs> I guess technically it's possible. <laughs> uh, why would China do that? That would be my question. Why would they jeopardize the one of the biggest growth industries in the world and their biggest opportunity to um, bring back online all of the trade issues. I mean, trade is still going. Trade is growing every year with every country, pretty much. And I think most countries in the world have China as their largest trading partner. Mm. If China has an ability to switch off your EV, why would it build that in and potentially <laughs> do it? And have no you, one would buy anything from China Exactly. Anymore. Our fridge is watching us and, <laughs> and our toaster can uh, find out what we're doing. Honestly, I just think it, this is a mad conspiracy theory. So, you, know, you need to get the tinfoil hat on if you really believe this Next is time true. I'll bring tinfoil hats. Yeah, that's a great idea. We should, <laughs> we should, we should do, do the podcast in tinfoil hats. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. One of the things that you have described a couple times, which I think is really valid point. I think I made my own video following your video. I was inspired by it. China today is not the China that it was five years ago. Not, not even 20 years ago is like a stretch. It's not even in the same universe. Mm -hmm. So uh, could you elaborate on how China is different and maybe how people who haven't been to China in a while might need a refresher? I made the comment, if you want to know what's going on in China, ask someone who's in China. Mm. And then the comment it went viral. It literally went everywhere, that comment. And I think it wasn't deliberate. I didn't, I didn't kind of put it out there as a quote being deliberate to make it go viral. It's just something I said, if you really want to know, ask people who know. Mm. And the people outside of China, if you haven't been in China in five years, you don't know China. It's as simple as that. You can ask people who are in China and they might tell you, but you don't know until you've seen it for yourself. Mm -hmm. China is... 100% different to how it was 10 years ago mm -hmm. and probably 50% different to how it was five years ago. If you think you know China and the last time you were here was 2008 for the Olympic Games or something, you don't know China. Mm. It is a very different place. And that's probably the biggest factor of anything that I say. I refute journalists all the time. Almost every journalist who writes about China is not in China. Mm. Some uh, of them haven't even been to China. Well, and then they're quoting people who haven't been to China. The Xinjiang narrative is completely based on people who have never been in China. Now, I know there are some Uyghur diaspora in Washington, D.C. They're not in China and haven't been in China for several years, and they have their reasons for being there and doing what they do. But the people who are actually the architects and the authors of the Xinjiang Uyghur genocide narrative mm -hmm. have never been there. And I have mm. <laughs> several times. And you know, when you haven't been somewhere, 
what makes you an expert on it? And this is the reason I'm a little less critical of America now mm -hmm. than I used to be, because I realized I was being hypocritical because I was criticizing the people who haven't been to Xinjiang, mm -hmm. but I haven't been to America. So I can look at all the statistics that the American government puts out mm -hmm. and say, America has serious problems with crime, with health, with drugs, with guns, with poverty, with homelessness, all these things. I can say because America actually puts these things into the public forum. Mm -hmm. China puts its information into the public forum and no one believes it. Yeah. But I've cycled through there twice through Xinjiang and I've been way off the beaten track, you know, not tourist track. When you're cycling, you do not stick to the main freeways. You, you're on the lower roads and you're meeting people. There is no oppression in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. I'm not saying there wasn't problems. There was definitely problems there. And I'm not saying there wasn't mistakes made. There was, I'm sure. But there is no systemic oppression there is definitely not a genocide. I mean, how can you genocide people that are growing in population? It's just, it's ridiculous. So there's no forced labor. There, all of the things that people are saying, they've never been there and asked the people who were there. Mm. And they're basing it on interpretations, which are generally speaking wrong. They could be misunderstandings. They could be misinterpretations, but they're all misinformation. Do people speak Uyghur in Xinjiang? Yeah, they do. Is there a Uyghur writing in Xinjiang? Yes, there is. There's a Uyghur writing <laughs> right behind me on the wall here, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Uyghur writing is everywhere. I mean, I'm, don't ask me. Just go online and have a look at any videos of Xinjiang. You will see it. It's all over the place. You, also it, just, there's, you don't need a special permit to go. No. So if you, if you have a visa to come to China and you want to know what's going on in Xinjiang, yeah. just go to Xinjiang. Yeah, you can just get on a train and go. It takes uh, 24 hours from Beijing. It's five and a half hours flying time yeah, from Guangzhou. It's, it's a long, long way. <laughs> and this is one of the things that really annoys me is that the people who are saying all of these bad things will then go on to say, you shouldn't go there because it's dangerous. You may be at risk of arbitrary arrest. They're giving you all these reasons not to go there. And I'm saying, just go. Yes. I mean, the problem is it just takes a long time. If you're coming to China for two weeks, you can't really go to Xinjiang mm. because it takes you one full day to get there. Mm. It takes you one full day to get back. And if you just see Urumuchi or Wulumuchi, or you just see Hami or Turfan or Holtan or Kashgar, if you just see one of those cities, you don't get the full picture. You've got to go between the cities. What I would suggest anyone does if they're coming to China is catch the train, the slow train, go into Xinjiang on the slow train. It takes 24 hours from Xi'an or Beijing to get there, Wuhan as well. And um, 24 hours on the train, you'll meet Uyghurs and talk to them and they will talk back to you if you have a translator. <laughs> So you've been here since 2005? Four. 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 Wow. So I wanted to kind of ask you about what you have seen change because I arrived in 2012 and I think there were about four or five subway lines in Beijing. Yeah. And now I don't know, there's like 30 or 40. So, um, I thought there was 28. <laughs> I'm out of touch. In, in, well, yeah, they're always adding little spurs. Yeah. In, in Shanghai, I think they have the most subway lines of any city in the yeah. entire world now. So could you walk us through how has China changed from 2004 to 2023? A little bit. You a don't have to bit. cover everything. The biggest change is environmental. The economic changes are unbelievable. Cities that didn't have high-rise now have high-rise. They didn't have freeways. They now have freeways. Villages that didn't have roads now have roads. Every village in China has a road, a sealed road leading into it, which wasn't the case before. So economically, it's changed enormously. I think they've built over 200 new universities in the last five years. 
and there would have been more in the five years before that. And that's more universities than the UK has. <laughs> but I mean, it's a much bigger population, so it's appropriate that they did. I think in terms of economy, environment, society, there is nothing at all that is like it was in 2004. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. You can't find corruption anymore. I mean, I've no doubt there are still corrupt people, no doubt at all. There will be corrupt people in every society, but there is no systemic corruption. Mm. You can't find a dirty river anymore because all the rivers have people responsible right, personally yeah. for them. And so those people will lose their jobs if that river is dirty. And you have telephone numbers you can call That's right. to say, yeah. this river is dirty. It's disgusting. You know, there's a smell Plastic coming out of it. Yeah. yeah. And it will get cleaned that day. Just yesterday, two days ago, a friend of mine in Zhongshan sent me a message and he said, you wouldn't believe this. He said, there was a really noisy thing happening in my street. I sent a message to a friend of ours in the local government and uh, within three hours it's fixed. This particular thing was a manhole cover that was loose. Mm. And every time a car went over it, it was a really big crack. And he thought it was going to be, if a car hits it and it breaks, yeah, then the, the car's, yeah, car's going to be cactus. So uh, he got that fixed within three hours. The, one, two, three, four, five in any city in the country. Right, yeah. yeah. Just dial that number and it's called the suggestions line. But it's actually a complaints line as well. One of the things I noticed about Beijing in 2012 is there were still a couple of places where there were gravel roads. Yeah. And now I can't even fathom. That's not anything like today. Like everything is so well made. There are lights everywhere. And so much changed from my perspective where I could find these little special places mm. that were like quite not quite developed. And now Wuhan, I spent a lot of time in Harbin, Changchun, goodness me, Shenyang. There's no place that I could find like that unless you go to like the countryside. Yeah. You go to the countryside, you might find there's still some places that lack development, but in you, any major You won't city, find in the countryside, you won't find a village that has a gravel road. What you will find is into the village, there will be a, a sealed road. Yeah. Now, once you're in that village, there may be some people who have a house that is halfway up the hill right. that has still got a dirt track. But the village itself has a sealed road. Every village in China now has that. And I can remember going to Guangxi in 2005 and having to walk. We had to park the bus. We were on a, a, a tour, actually, it was a charity thing. And uh, we were on this tour and we had to walk eight kilometers into a village. When we got into the village, I took some photographs and there was horses delivering stock to the store in the village. So they, we walked past some horses that were delivering stock. And in order for people in that village to get to the town, the nearest town, they had to walk the eight kilometers to the freeway and there was no bus. They had to wait there until a truck came past and they would wave the truck down and give the truck driver one or two RMB. And he just, so if it was an empty truck, he'd pick up four, five, 50, 20 people. That's how they supplemented their income, mm. the truck drivers. Now there's a, believe it or not, in Quincy, there's electric buses all over the place. Mm. So it is inconceivable. I mean, it's like traveling from some of the sub-Saharan African countries into the most developed city you've ever been in in your life in the space of a day. That's what it was then because Shenzhen and places like that were just so developed. But the countryside wasn't. It was underdeveloped, totally underdeveloped. It was a third world country. China's still underdeveloped. 
in a lot of respects, but it's getting there. In terms of Zhongshan, what kind of changes in that city specifically have you seen? Well, we have uh, two high-speed rail stations that we didn't have before. We don't have yet a metro line, but in 2024, one will open. But there's only going to be two stops. It's a small city, three million people, four million people, small city in China. We're going to have two or three, two lines, but there's only, I think, four stops in the whole city. It's not really necessary. You know, something, I said this to you the other day, I've never taken me an hour to reach anywhere in Zhongshan. So well, it takes me longer than an hour to get places in Beijing. I mean, yeah. It is a huge city. I mean, it has 20, roughly somewhere between 21 and 24 million yeah. people live in Beijing. That's almost the size of Australia's population. Yeah, I was going to say, there are a lot of countries that, you know, it's greater than their entire population. Oh, yeah, Belgium, Holland, the European countries, yeah, a lot of them have less than that. You are, you're British and you're Australian. Yeah. And one of the things that's important to you, as I understand, is Sino-Australian relations. Yeah. Could you elaborate on the potential for cooperation and what you think might be holding that cooperation back? I think what's holding it back is a hostile media. Mm -hmm. A hostile media creates a hostile public. Yeah. And what happens is people read how bad China is. Now, if we can start with the premise that almost everything you read is wrong, then you can start to think, well, maybe we can put this right. And that's really my goal. Australia needs China more than it needs any other country in the world. Australia is the only developed country in the world with a trade surplus with China, the only one. Every other country in the world that is developed has a trade deficit with China. Australia exports massive amounts of minerals, gas, and coal is a big one to China. Wine. Now, China is used to be wine. It is still one. It never stopped being one. I mean wine. Oh, wine. Sorry, I, I thought you sorry. said. I thought you talked about the coal being one. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll forgive you for that. <laughs> Australia has this massive, and you can still buy Australian wine here. They're, they're, even that is not what people say it is. Uh, and it's not that expensive either. I mean, it's a little more expensive, but it's not. What happened uh, with Australia is Australia, I think, needs to develop its own capacity. But of course, if it takes all of its bauxite and makes aluminium, if it takes all of its iron ore and starts making steel, they will then contribute massively to the pollution. So they would prefer to just ship loads, not containers, but ship loads of earth to China, let China process that, produce things from it, and ship them back. Mm. And that is how it works. But the population of Australia is relatively small, as small as Shanghai. And as a result of that, their imports are a lot less than their exports. Mm. Very soon, China will stop. In 2035, they will be carbon peak in 2035, carbon neutral in 2060. And when they reach that, they will not be importing coal. So Australia needs to accommodate that loss of massive income. They're not going to be bringing in gas from Australia, but they're bringing less gas in because America has done a deal with the gas, which took a lot of the sales from Australia. Australians think that China is their enemy, and it's not. China is their friend. Their enemy is the people who are saying China is their enemy. It really is not true that China has no intention of this invasion of Taiwan. And then a lot of Australians think that China will roll over from Taiwan and then invade Australia. For what purpose? Because they need our resources. Well, they got your resources. Your resources are coming <laughs> in in massive amounts. Yeah. Well, they're going to steal them. Why would they steal them? They're buying them. And it's a great relationship. And I think I really believe that when Anthony Albanese was elected a few months, uh, it's a year and a half ago now, when he was elected, I thought, now we're going to see a sea change here. We didn't see that change. What we saw was he 
continued with the rhetoric. He's got a defense minister who is very afraid of China and very threatening about China. And uh, he believes that AUKUS is the best thing, the best way to go. AUKUS is the purchase of these submarines, which are attack submarines, not defense. Uh, the cancellation of a defensive submarine pack, which didn't bother anybody. And the cancellation did, the purchase didn't. Uh, China suddenly says, well, if you're not defending your shores, who are you attacking? And China is quite right to question this. Who are you going to attack with these attack submarines? And the rhetoric is all about, or the rhetoric is all about China attacking Australia, which is never going to happen. China is doing very, very well. China's got no history of attacking anybody. Why would it suddenly start now? Because people want us to believe it will start. What needs to happen? It absolutely needs Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese to come over here and actually confront the situation. Well, you mentioned part of the what's preventing Australian people mm. from understanding China better is media. the media. Yeah. So for people in Australia <clears throat> or anywhere, Western Europe, United States, Canada, who want to better understand China, mm. but the media is actually preventing them from doing so because of the obscure stories that they're running. How can they learn more about China? There's actually a very good media outlet in Australia uh, called, um, it's John Menadue's Public Policy Journal on Pearls and Irritations. If you, it's johnmenadue.com. If you look at that, it's called Pearls and Irritations, pearls being the little jewel that you get and the irritation being the problems that create it. And um, I've written for Pearls and Irritations as well, so this is a bit of a plug for some of my writing. We People who write for Pearls and Irritations don't get paid. We write for them because... It's a fair, it's a very, very middle of the road, accurate. You know, they don't publish stuff that is sensational. They just publish what is in the benefit of the public. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. some of the things there. There are things in there that I don't agree with. I read a report, an article in there yesterday that there's at least one paragraph that I want to say, look, now I agree with this article in principle, but this one paragraph spoils it. Um, and it is this Xinjiang, Hong Kong and um, Tibet issues on Taiwan, of course. These issues, if we were to take these issues out and say, there is no Xinjiang issue worth talking about. Yeah, there are some problems, but those problems are not there now. That's not true. So Xinjiang narrative is not true. The Hong Kong free democracy kind of thing. Hong Kong never had democracy. China has not taken anything away from Hong Kong. It has given many things to Hong Kong. So if we can put those two aside, China is never going to invade Taiwan. It is part of Taiwan. Why would China invade its own country for one thing? And China has categorically stated, we want peaceful reunification. So Tibet has just been a 70-year-old thorn in the side. And basically, Tibet was, and it's been written and admitted by the CIA that Tibet problem exists because the CIA wanted a thorn in the communist side. Mm. That's what they've got. And so if we take those four things off the table and say, really, these are not true and they're not issues, everything else about China should be positive. Everything about China should be positive. They're nice people. They're plenty of money. They want to be tourists in your country. They want to be students in your country. Yes, they have built a massive navy and a massive air force and a massive army because there's a massive navy, air force and army surrounding them. So Really? <laughs> yeah. And it's yours. Um, but the you know, fact is, 
If you want to be powerful in this world, you need to at least match the power of America. The only way to be powerful in this world is to match America. And America does not want China to be powerful. It wants China to be subservient. And China will never be that. Again, it was for 100 years. They call it their century of humiliation. They lost Hong Kong. They lost Macau. Well, that there will happen years before. They had concessions in 46 different places, the French, the Germans, the Italians. Everybody had concession areas inside of China that China didn't control. They were not China. It was like an embassy is the sovereign land of a country. The concessions were the same. China did not control much of Shanghai, much of Beijing, much of Wuhan. These were concessions that belonged to other countries. So China doesn't want that to happen again. And so in order to stop it, they need to be defensive. China's navy is not going anywhere. China's army is not around the world. It's in Djibouti. That's it, as is their navy. There's a naval and military base in Djibouti. And the United States asked them to build that to help Correct. piracy. By and the it way. did. And, so and the only foreign base that yeah. China has was a request by the United States Correct. to build that. And if we go back about 10 years or 8 years, we will find that there are really complementary things that the Americans said about China's contribution in that region. They were working together and working well. Well, Americans were not succeeding until China started working with them. These are, we can go back in Google archives and find things like that. One thing that's really important for me is as I've talked to dozens of people like yourself who try to bring China and the rest of the world together Mm -hmm. is people to people exchanges. And it can't just all happen at the CEO level or the government Mm -hmm. level. It needs to be just regular folks coming to China, Chinese people coming to Australia, other places around the world. There is a scare narrative, at least in my country, trying to frighten people of the idea of moving to China. And I think this is ludicrous. I know hundreds, if not thousands of people that I've met over the last decade from all over the world who've moved to China and had wonderful lives here. Yeah, yeah, for people in the UK, people in Australia, who may be a little reticent to come to China, maybe a little, oh, I'm going to become one of these Michaels, right? What would you say to about what life is really like here. Life here is good. It's relatively cheap to live here. It's the, People talk about the authoritarianism of the country. And I, as you can see now, I like <laughs> to drink beer and I drink beer in the street. My wife is currently in Australia. She's coming back on a flight tonight, actually. And she was telling me yesterday they had a family picnic on the beach. And her father, my father-in-law, said, oh, we'll put this bottle of wine in the esky. Esky is the, the container for uh, keeping things cool. And my sister said, no, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed to take alcohol. And my father was like, what? Can't take alcohol? He wants a bottle of wine uh, with his lunch. So no, you're not allowed to drink alcohol in the streets in Australia, but you do here. You can have, this is a very tiny example of the lack of restrictions. People, electric bikes on the footpath, yes. (laughs) People don't wear helmets. In in Australia, if you don't wear a helmet on your bicycle, you get a penalty. If you, in one state of Australia, if you haven't got uh, a photo identification and you're not wearing a helmet, you get a higher penalty than you would if you jump a red light in a car. It's a very different world to what we expect. There are a lot of police. There are. I mean, that's one factor that people say, oh, it's an authoritarian state. You see police everywhere. Yeah, you do, but they're friendly police. Mm-hmm. At least they are to me. And, you know, they've never bothered anybody that I know. They just do their job and they're very helpful people. The authoritarianism of China, the fear of arbitrary arrest is negligible. There are a couple of things you don't 
don't do drugs. If you get caught doing drugs, uh, even if it's just smoking pot, you will be deported after a 14-day um, holiday. Uh, so, I mean, I think the idea, follow the law, should apply everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> know the law. It's the same as anywhere else. I mean, if you come here from, for example, I think in Canada and parts of most of North America, or much of North America, smoking cannabis <coughs> is legal. It's, it's quite acceptable. If you come here carrying it, you won't be allowed in. You won't be arrested. You'll just be turned away. Hmm. If you come here looking like you're smelling of it, if the dog, <laughs> and there are sniffer dogs, if the sniffer dog picks up the scent, they will take a urine sample from you, test you, and if you've taken any cannabis in the last 14 days, then you will not be allowed entry. Simple as that. So if you're coming over here and you smell like or carrying, then you may have an issue. But that's the law. If you don't do it, there's no problem. You'll never get into trouble in China. In fact, the opposite if you're a foreigner, they don't want to. I ride my bike everywhere and I'm, mm. I'm always wearing a helmet, but they don't have to. And uh, they want us on the footpath. In China, did you know that? I did not. Know. Yeah, the law in China is that the bike should be on the footpath, not on the road, because it goes back to the day. In Beijing, you've got cycle tracks everywhere. Mm -hmm. In cities mm -hmm. where you don't have cycle tracks, you should be on the footpath. And of course, it goes back to the days when people rode their bikes to the marketplace and, and you know, 10 kilometers, 12 kilometers an hour, and they're only going six or 700 meters down the road, pick up their chicken and fish, and then riding home again. Now, I ride a bike with all of the gear, and I've got the gloves, the hat, and I'm riding on the road. They see me, and then because I'm a foreigner, they just go, oh, go on your way. But they will stop an electric bike or a, an ordinary bike. I get the benefit of being a foreigner because they know I could speak to them in Chinese, but I tend not to. They know that it's going to be more awkward to stop me and tell me to do something. Mm -hmm. So there's less problem if you're a foreigner coming to China. Yeah. I've been treated outstandingly well yeah, during my time. A little bit of well. white privilege, I think. I think there's, yeah. there's foreigner privilege of yeah. living in China. Yeah. They, generally, they want people to like it here. There's also a little, I'm going to go a little negative here. There's something yeah. called we call foreign attacks. Um, my wife won't let me, she'll let me go shopping, but she won't go shopping with me. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, because negotiations. Yeah, right? when we go to the market stall and she says, how much are your potatoes? They look at me and they say four RMB. And she said, but it's three RMB for her. <laughs> We call that foreign attacks. You know, I've actually gotten the opposite because there's a place here called the Silk Market. Oh, yeah. Here yeah, in yeah. Beijing. And I go, I got this shirt here, actually. And I go and I'm ruthless as a negotiator yeah. because I've seen how the Chinese do it. I've yeah. learned from them. When, with the Silk Market, I haven't been in the Silk Market in maybe 10 years, but I used to, if they said it was 100, I would say I'll give you 10. Yeah, I would exactly. start at 10%. Yeah. And, and I'd be happy to pay something like 12 or 15% of their original price. Mm. You just spend that. But you can only do that if you do it in yeah. Chinese. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have your side. You can only do it in Chinese. They won't do it in English with you. If you're a foreigner and you want to negotiate and bargain with things, best to do it in Chinese. Have a Chinese person do it with you if you can't. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. And hopefully we can have you back. I'd like that, but that would be really for the fourth time. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I originally thought it was the fourth time. Thank, thank you again. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you.